So this is our third session, and um, we are looking at this classical work by the great, <coughs> excuse me, Imam Ar-Ramli, titled Riyadat al-Sabyan, has been rendered into English by Sidi Abdulaziz Ahmed, and his work is titled Educating Children, Classical Advice for Modern Times. And to just remind ourselves of his methodology, he translates this poem, this didactic poem that was written that to be taught, and that it was probably memorized as well. And he comments on the lines that of Imam Ramni drawing on <coughs> one of the commentaries by Sheikh Abdullah bin Ahmed Basudan. And then towards the end, that he will offer his own thoughts um, that based upon Islamic and other sources. So it's, it's a very good work. And again, the idea is to start discussing this topic from an Islamic perspective. And there's no doubt, even if we go through and finish the whole book, <coughs> there'll still be a lot of work that needs to be done. This is a very good starting point. And that there are some that very important points made in this text. So we, we haven't gotten too far. The first uh, session was really more uh, of an introduction. And um, now we're going to that continue on. So we're on page 17 of the text. And uh, paragraph, second paragraph. <coughs> and so we're still under the section where that he says that <coughs> My goodness. Know that the education of children from the initial stages is a great affair. So <clears throat> he's still discussing how this is such a great affair. And again, that the first word that he uses to describe this is ta'deeb. And we're going to have a few other terms introduced here as well. We also spoke a little bit about tarbiyah uh, and ta'deeb in previous sessions. But he translates ta'deeb as education. <coughs> and in our last session, we went into a little bit of depth about this word and touching upon its importance. And one of the things that <clears throat> we, ha- we have to recognize is that we, we, we don't want to limit the word of adab to manners. And manners are an important part of it. But we don't want to limit the word adab to manners. Because it's when we understand the word adab in its broadest implication, i.e., is that when you learn adab, essentially what you are doing in an Islamic context is preparing yourself to know Allah. You're preparing yourself to that receive mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that adab is a term of the utmost importance. And it's not limited to that these outward etiquettes or manners, although that's a part of it. So we ended in the last session with the hadith of our Prophet ﷺ in the collection of Al-Hakam that says is that the Qur'an is the Ma'dubatullah. The Qur'an that is that Allah's banquet. And we spoke about this word Ma'duba and how it relates to the word Adab linguistically. And then in terms of this idea of the Ma'duba that having all different types of colors and uh, different arrays of the things that we eat, and how this word adab <coughs> is a trait that is a very is, is a word that has this overarching meaning of that, including all of these good traits of character that could that fall underneath it. And so, <coughs> the author then says is that the two concepts are directly connected, i.e., the idea of the Quran. Being the, the ma'duba of Allah, which is this table spread of food, a banquet, in between that adab itself. And then he goes into a point that we have heard many times, 
and the idea of the Prophet ﷺ being a reflection of the Qur'an, being a walking Qur'an. His character was that of the Qur'an. And no matter how many times that we hear this, is that when you really think about that, that's something very amazing. That to think about our Prophet ﷺ is a humanly perfect example of what it means to put the Book of Allah into practice. <coughs> this is why our teachers emphasize that if you really want to know the meaning of certain verses of the Quran, you have to look at the life of the Prophet. ﷺ because his life is the greatest tafsir. If indeed he embodied the message, which was the case, is that his life was the greatest tafsir. And that we learn that when to be that merciful, when to be just, when to be lenient, when to, when to be strict, that <clears throat> what to do inside the home, outside the home, and all these different aspects. His life clarifies to us, because sometimes we might read Allah's book, and I would say that arguably, one of the greatest problems of our time is that people do not know how to properly implement the book of Allah in our time. And they will take verses out of context, or that they will take certain verses and forget that there's other verses as well that you also have to consider before you act on a particular matter. This is one of the great traits of <coughs> the Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah is that they approach the Qur'an holistically, is that they don't read verses in isolation. They understand that each verse in its proper context and how it relates to the Book of Allah, one of the traits of the people of Bid'ah is that they tend to cherry-pick and choose what they want from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's revelation, which is obviously something that we shouldn't do. But, <clears throat> this, so this is very important, is that we learn how the Qur'an was put into practice. And then we have so many of these blessed examples of great human beings throughout history who have also put the Qur'an into practice in their context. And so that when someone asks you, well, why is it so important to read biographies? Why is it so important to read about the lives of the great people who came before us? There's a number of answers that you could give. That we benefit directly spiritually. And you could go on and on about this. And I hope someday, I've been meaning to do this for years, but there's a lot of things that <clears throat> have been kind of floating and hoping to do for long periods of time. Inshallah, one day they will be done is that to, to that really look at, there's, there's several, there's many books in our history written on loving the awliya, the true people of piety, the true people of taqwa, and that why we should love them, and what's the foundation in the Quran and the sunnah of loving them, and so forth and so on. And this necessarily is one of the topics that will arise. But the easy answer to the person who's asking that question is, because you are learning about a practical example of how someone successfully put Allah's book into practice. And what is meant here by successfully is that they have been validated by Allah. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. They probably made mistakes. <clears throat> but usually they're minor mistakes. And Allah Ta'ala that overlooks their mistakes, especially in light of all the great good that we've done. That we live in a time in the call-out culture. Uh, that we are now in is that someone could have 99,999 99, good things about them, but they just have one thing. That, and they might have made a mistake and been wrong in it. But is the tendency now is to forget the 99,999 things someone did, and I'm only focusing on this one thing. Right? Or maybe it's a little bit that not one out of that 100,000 like I mentioned. But anyhow, we have to be very careful of that tendency. These are people that have successfully put the Qur'an into practice. And this is why they are here to inspire us so that we can follow in their footsteps and do the same thing. So the Qur'an is the banquet from which we feast until our inner beings overflow with its meanings and blessings and then become apparent through our character. This is why we have to have a connection to the book of Allah Ta'ala. And that every Muslim 
should do their best to learn first and foremost how to recite the Quran properly. Force yourself to learn the Arabic language. It doesn't actually take that long. If you would work hard for two months, you would be able to read <clears throat> the Quran in a basic way. If you put a little bit more time into it, is that your reading will get better pretty soon, is that you'll be able to read a juz in 30 minutes or maybe even 25 minutes. And that then we go from outwardly pronouncing it correctly to getting into its meanings. So we all should that endeavor to do this, to learn how to recite Allah Ta'ala's book and to actually recite it. And the beauty is, even if we don't know the detailed meanings, from the power of merely reciting the Qur'an, it will impact your heart. And the more that it impacts your heart, <clears throat> the more of the light of the Qur'an touches your internal reality, the more then that you will have its character outwardly. And so, that he says here, is that through the process of feasting on the Qur'an and through the guidance which he, sallallahu received directly from Allah, we will understand the behavior appropriate to each situation. And this is important, this idea that every situation, there is behavior that is appropriate to that particular situation. And they differ. And we have to learn when to do what. Every situation is different. And this is where wisdom comes in. And at first, sometimes we tend to grapple with our principles because that our principles, that we might think that it means in this situation that it means that we do the same as in another situation. But as we become more and more wise, we realize, no, it actually, that we have to act differently in this situation. Sometimes it takes being burnt. Other times it requires that we make a mistake and then we readjust. But this is why, this is one of the meanings of our Prophet Sallallahu saying is that a believer is not stung from the same hole twice. Meaning that if you put your hand in a hole and something bites you, and you realize, hmm, something's living in there, you don't want to do that twice. And so we should learn from our mistakes. And that we are going to make mistakes, but let's learn from them. And then this is exactly how we grow, by learning from our mistakes. So he says here, that we will show inner and outward etiquette to our Creator, ourselves, our families, and all of creation. For this reason, inculcating adab is described in the poem as a great affair, a tamushan. So you could say shan or sha'an. Both are correct pronunciations. One <coughs> is with the hamza and the other one is just with an alif. But a sha'an or a shan is an affair. And when you say something is a tamushan, it's a great affair. So this really is a great affair, inculcating adab. Again, in the broadest <clears throat> meaning, in the broadest meaning, into our children. This is the whole affair when Allah Ta'ala blesses someone with children. Is that this is the amana, the trust, that is placed upon the shoulders of the parent. How can I inculcate in my child adab in all of these different meanings? And that here, that he says here, من أول النشوي, which is what comes right before atamushani. So the phrase, from the initial stages, according to Sheikh Basudan, refers to the point where a child can distinguish between right and wrong. And that there, we'll clarify what this means, but this is what is called the age of discrimination, the sendatamiz. Mayyaza yumayizu is to be able to discriminate in the sense of telling the difference between things. And scholars <coughs> give a number of definitions in the books of fiqh about what constitutes the age of discrimination. Sometimes you'll see things as simple as differentiating between a very hot rock and one that is not as hot. Other times that they will say is that the child can <clears throat> use the restroom by themselves and clean themselves that alone and that uh, there are other definitions but they, that they offer as well meaning it, it represents a certain age where now the child has matured beyond that more infant or baby-like stage where they're constantly in need of assistance they need assistance in eating they need assistance in when they use the restroom and so forth so it's not necessarily seven, 
which is that it could be, for some, it might be the age of five, it might be the age of six, depending upon the child. Some children mature that quicker than others. Um, it's when we start to see now that they're different. And there are certain ahkam of the shariat that now relate to this particular age. So if a child is two or three years old, for instance, that it's not permissible to ask that child to bring you a copy of the Qur'an. Right? They have to be at the age of discrimination before they do that. Right? So before they reach the age of discrimination, at least in the Shafi school, and it probably would be better if I would check the different schools to not make things difficult on people before presenting a position like that. But just to make you aware, there are ahkam that relate to, rulings in the sacred law that relate to that the age of discrimination. Uh, also it relates to that the boy leading the prayer. Is that once they read, read, reach the age of discrimination, they can actually lead adults in prayer. Even if they are not balagh and legally responsible yet. So there are a number of ahkam <coughs> that relate to it. But here he says is that this is what is meant by awul nashwi according to the author is that this is when the, the stage of tarbiyah really begins. Before that, it doesn't mean that you don't discipline your children and say, oh, just go do whatever you want to do until age seven. No, that we still are supposed to teach our children things. And you'd be surprised what children can learn. So you could roughly mean by awud and neshwi, is it from the very, very beginning. Because there are things that you can do, actually, and this is where we're going to get into this in the next few sentences, is that actually tarbiyah begins with your own self. That raising children begins with your own self. After your own self, it begins on the partner that you choose to then have children with. That it begins from even before the child's born. What is your intention in having children to begin with? And then, once you know that a child is on the way, that what do you do while the child is still in the womb of the mother? And then it definitely begins with birth itself. And what do you expose the child to from the very beginning? And then in the earliest stages. And you'll find ajaib, amazing things of tarbiyah. And um, when I reference the city of Tarim, this is where I study, so this is what I know. I'm sure there's beautiful examples of this all throughout the Muslim world. But it was known that they used to wake up while they were nursing their children at the time of tahajjud with the intention that their child would get used to making tahajjud from the time that they're a nursing infant. What an intention. Allahu Akbar. Like actually intentionally nursing your child that before fajr so that the hopes of that child will be pious. And at that time where it's special that this is the last third of the night, this is a time where there is a herald that calls out, is there anyone who is, has a need that I can grant them that need? If they're asking for something, I can give them that something. Anyone who's making, seeking forgiveness so that I can forgive them. Little things like this, they might seem like they're little, but they're immense. They're not little at all. And little things like making an intention. What is our intention in having children? Is it something that we do just because, oh yeah, we get married and we have children, that's what you do. Or is it something that just happens and we don't even make an intention? Right? Or is there a conscious intention that I want to have a child for A, B, and C? Good intentions that we can make. And in terms of the human side of it, that the vast majority of creation wants children, of course. The vast majority of creation loves their children and that enjoys their children, of course. You don't need to intend that to, but experience that. That comes with it. We should attempt to restrict our intentions to the noble intentions, why we are doing this. But again, it starts right way early on. And so this is very, very common is that all of a sudden parents have children that reach the teenage years or they're in their late teens or their early 20s. And then everything's gone haywire. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, how do I raise my children? Yani, it's not too late. Don't ever, you can never say that it's too late. But that is a question we should have asked ourselves a long time ago. Right? Getting back to first and foremost, how it is that 
we have chosen to conduct our own life. And we should never make anyone despair by telling them, oh, it's too late, you're doomed. No, that we still have to do our best, right, given no matter what. But <clears throat> it's a very different situation when you're building a child from the beginning as opposed to repairing damage that happens much later. Because they require two different approaches. Building has its own set of rules that <clears throat> what you could call renovation <laughs> is something very different. Right? It's something very different. And that if you want to build a building from scratch that fits your purposes, <coughs> you analyze where it is that you want to build that, look at the nature of the earth, what it is that you want to build, and so forth and so on. Dealing with something that's already built, you're somewhat limited to a certain degree. Right? And again, you can't ever lose hope. You still have to do your best. But it's just food for thought. Anyhow, so <clears throat> it begins when the child can ex distinguish between right and wrong. So this specific meaning of, of, of Tadib begins then. The other last thing that I want to say is that even when our children are young, one, two, three, four, five years old, when we have to have realistic expectations of what they can do and what they cannot do, is that still it's good to expose them. That expose them to the Qur'an. Expose them to people that you know are righteous. We have a, we have, from, this, from this standpoint, that certain aspects of the, inter, uh, of the internet are a blessing. You can put on videos for them of very righteous people. And even if they don't understand... There's something about the awliya is that Allah Ta'ala has given them ability, an ability to spiritualize technology. In other words, is that some of them have say, said things like, the one who that listens to one of my lectures is like someone who's in my gathering. And what is meant by that is not the outward dimension, because anyone can benefit from the outward dimension of listening to a YouTube video or something. What is meant by that is a spiritual guarantee that through their du'as of Allah that they know that this will be the reality for those who do this. Which is an immense thing indeed, how they knew that in the first place and then them having permission to say things like that. But one of the examples of that is the Habib Abdul Qadir Ahmed al-Saqaf used to say that. The one, and this was in the day of tapes, the one who listens to a, re a cassette recording of one of my that talks is like the one who is present in my gathering. And the blessing is that remains to this day. It doesn't just cut off with them returning to Allah Jalla Jalala. And what does it mean to be in a gathering of an Araf Billah? And what descends by way of mercy and blessing and all of these other that great things? And we, can ex we should expose our children to that. Because we tend to forget is that the reality of the human being is the Ruh. And the child, even though that it's a baby it eventually will catch up with its potential that lies dormant in their physical body, but the ruh is there. And the ruh understands. And that then eventually, that when you that nourish the ruh, even from the early stage, is that the physical body will catch up eventually. So this is something that we should get in the habit of doing from the time that our children are born. Just play tapes, play lectures, put them in front of these great people, even if it be by way of a screen. And if we can combine to that as well, outwardly, that taking them to meet the righteous, and that asking the righteous or people that we believe to be righteous to pray from them, that also is something that is very good. Um, and there's a lot of other things as well. Things like nasheed. Instead of, from time to time, okay, lullabies and nursery rhymes, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's content that is permissible. But better yet, why not get them accustomed to beautiful nasheed from early on? And I guarantee you, if you raise your children, it, well, this is one thing we all have to, we live in a society of sounds, and we live in a society of music. And so to expect your child to transition into adulthood and not to listen to music, um, you're really talking about one in a million people that are going to be able to do that. That's not realistic. And so I think we all have to make a decision 
to either give them a healthy alternative or just simply you have to put up with the consequences. Because the, if we just tell our children, music is haram, don't listen to this, and what we mean by that is a specific types of music, and we don't give them an alternative, what are we supposed to do? Expect them just to just sit at home and like do nothing? Um, you might have a rare case of someone who was able to do that without music. Personally, I, I find that, that hard to believe uh, that, that's, uh, that's even within the realm of possibility because there's just so much music that is out there and there's such a lure to listen to certain types of music and then the personalities of the people associated with it that are terrible and will, that suck up the barakah and light from the heart of the person who listens to this stuff, especially some of these absolutely disgusting that videos that go along with them. So it makes much more sense for us to expose them to something beautiful. That sounds in and of themselves, have the, they're permissible. What really matters is the lyrics. Yes, there are certain genres of music that incite the nafs more than others. There's no doubt about that. There, there are genres that are more nafsi in that sense. And... Um, Ideally, that we want to expose them to that better sounds, sounds that really bring out the best of them, uh, but sounds in and of themselves that have the degree, uh, have the hukum of being permissible, um, and the lyrics are the single most important thing. And so we have to make sure the lyrics are good, and to the extent possible that the sounds are less nafsi, the better. And I think that's the way that we should practically approach. Um, that music and things like Nasheed with our children. But if you get them used to beautiful poems of the Arifin Billah, of the great righteous people from an early age, I guarantee you is that they won't feel a need to listen to bad music. They'll be fulfilled at the depth of their being in a very different way. It won't be a fitna for them. And that especially if they hear it day in and day out, week in and week out, is that you will see instead of singing that nursery rhyme, which is permissible, they're singing some of the lines of one of the Arifin Billah. That every time that you mention their lines, that there's deep spiritual benefit, which is better? Do we want our kids just to be normal? Or do we want our kids to really attain higher degrees of closeness to Allah? That's a choice we will make as parents. And in relation to what it is that we expose them to, uh, that hopefully is that we will expose them to what is going to be of maximum benefit to them. So he then says, this should be understood in the context of the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said, Choose well for your embryos, for surely genes will be transferred. For surely genes will be transferred. The literal translation would be, Surely the umbilical cord transmits, implying that character traits are inherited by the child from the mother. And it goes both ways. Is that men need to be very careful about who it is that they choose to let marry, and women need to be very careful about who it is that they choose to marry as well. This is a major decision in life. And it doesn't mean that we, that, um, that, are so worried about it that we actually are scared to ever to make a decision? No. Sometimes relationships go sour, and that happens. Uh, however, is that we should, to the extent possible, choose carefully. And this is why the, quote, initial stages of parenting begin when one chooses a spouse. And the only thing I would say there is that, no, it begins with your own self. It begins with yourself. Stage two is choosing your spouse. It is for this reason that the Prophet ﷺ said, be careful of a it's it looks like it says here hadara, but it's khadra al-damin, which is a beautiful green shrub, he translates it as here. And that the Arabs, whenever they would speak about husn or beauty, they would oftentimes refer to something that's khadra, something that is green. And the idea here of demon um, that linguistically it is a that piece of land that had been used uh, by farmers who had cattle and livestock 
In other words, that it had been soiled by the excrements of those animals. And then, so what was meant here is, is that the khadra here is the shrub that is beautiful, but is that what underlies it is something that is that not the very best of things. And when the, he, they asked them, the Prophet, what, you know, what, what, are the, what is the khadra ad-daman? And he said, beautiful women of low origin, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that meaning, that like he encouraged us in other hadith, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, is that we should choose the right person for the right reasons. And that someone should not solely choose the person that they want to marry based upon looks. There are things that are much, much, much more important than that. That deen is really what comes first. Good character comes before that. And other considerations as well. Is that, that um, looks is one of the considerations that the fuqaha mentioned in the books. But is that it should not be the number one consideration. The modern world in which we live, and human beings fall susceptible through this throughout the time, is it make this the number one single most important consideration. Which in the end is that what our Prophet is warning of is that, you know, we have to be careful about who, who are we marrying, what family are we marrying into. This is important. And I know this is especially sensitive for converts who um, oftentimes that... Uh, come from different backgrounds and so forth, and it doesn't mean by, at, at all that our prophet is indicating that that people should not be getting married that are from certain backgrounds. The prophet is simply encouraging us to be careful that who it is that we are going to have a union with, because there's likely to be children, and so that the affair of raising children begins with that choice. So he is simply teaching us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. To choose well. Now, this is a conversation that for the most part of people that are that yet to be married. Um, and if someone is yet to be married, then these are things that they want to think about. But it is helpful for parents to also think about these. Also in raising children that we that put this in our children's head from an early stage as well. What do you want? What should you look for that in your future life companion? And that we have to be that very careful about how it is that we address this topic with them and to give them good guidance. The author says it is a great affair, meaning it is important in a compulsion. And then he mentions here that the verse in the Quran, which really requires reflecting upon. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, O you who believe, qu anfusukum wa ahlikum naran. O you who believe, save yourselves and your families from a fire. Whose fuel is men in stones. That over which are appointed angels stern and severe. Who flinch not from executing the commands they receive from Allah, but do precisely what they are commanded. Is that Jannah is true and the fire is true. And that these are the two final abodes. And here that Allah Ta'ala is saying, Qu and Fusukum Ahlikum. And notice here that he says, first and foremost, save yourselves and your families. Save yourselves and your families. Meaning is that this is not just a something in the modern world. This is a perspective that all people should have in whatever time in which they live. Is that there are forces that are out there that if you submit to them is that they will take you in the wrong direction and it could lead to punishment right this does not mean is that we raise our kids based upon imposing fear in them that's not what it means what this is indicating to us that as people who <clears throat> are in charge of themselves and have families is that there is an immense responsibility upon the shoulder immense and that responsibility should weigh heavy upon us. It doesn't mean that we despair when things go wrong. But it means that we should feel a deep sense of responsibility. And that should translate into a willingness to do everything that it is that we can do to that 
educate our children in the broadest meaning of education here, translated as the using as the translation of tadib, that to that we should do everything that we can do to educate them and inculcate adab in them, and um, it should be a priority for us. This should be a priority. Is that after taking care of ourselves, taking care of our families. And it's very easy to become so busy with so many different things that we get our priorities messed up. And that anyone at any time that says is that they need to step back from something to give priority to their family, that absolutely has to be respected. Because that's the right decision. That families must be given, your family must come first after maintaining what you need to do for your own self. Your family has to come first. And um, uh, that um, otherwise is that we're not obeying Allah wa ta'ala and what He's commanded us to do in His book, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then in the next line, He says, وَقَدْ بِذَاكَ صَرَّحَ الْغَزَالِ and that he says, and certainly Al-Ghazali has made that clear. So keep in mind this is that referring to that, uh, that a statements of, of Imam Al-Ghazali that he made in one of his books uh, translated as Discipline the Soul. The poet states that this text is based largely on the work of Imam Abu Hamad Al-Ghazali. He describes him as Sadiq al-Maqal, which means truthful in his words, but implies that he was, quote, sincere in his advice and guidance. Naam. Sadiq is also a reference to his spiritual status. The highest spiritual status a non-prophet can reach is that of a Siddiqiyat al-Kubra, which is of after the prophets, the Siddiqin or the highest rank that after the prophets and messengers. And then there's what's called a Siddiqiyat al-Kubra, the greatest station of Siddiqiyah of all of the, if, if, if Siddiqin is a rank it's the highest degree of being that from the Siddiqin and then he mentions a little bit of bio data about um, Imam al-Ghazali won't go into all those details it's there for you um, in your um, in, in the book um, but just a little bit about Imam al-Ghazali just it shows you how his, his story itself is a testimony to um, that what you could call is that third stage, which is intention. So after working on yourself, choosing the right partner, what is your intention for having children? So Imam Ghazali's father, uh, who's also his name was Muhammad bin Muhammad, there was Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Muhammad bin Ahmed al Ghazali. Um, he loved his children. He loved Imam al Ghazali, whose name was Muhammad, and his brother, whose name was Ahmed. And that his father loved the ulama as well. He would attend the gatherings of the fuqaha, the scholars of fiqh, and he would say, Ya Rabb, bless me with a son who's a fuqih. And then he would attend the gatherings, the general gatherings of mu'idah, where they would receive admonition from preachers. And he would say, Ya Rabb, give me a son who's a wa'ith. Give me a son who can impact people and to you know, call them to good. And Allah Ta'ala gave him, subhanAllah, that these two great sons, Imam al-Ghazali and his brother. His brother was much, that was nowhere near as well known as he was. But actually he was an amazing that scholar. And he was one of the great Persian poets. And some say that certain genres within Persian poetry, he was the first to really that develop them. And uh, he took over the Nidamiya after Imam Ghazali left. Uh, and anyhow, he was, he was amazing. He was the one who, that was present on the last days of Imam Ghazali. And that in this year that is mentioned here of the common era, 1111, that he describes that the death of his brother. He says that my brother prayed Salat al-Fajr. And then after he prayed Salat al-Fajr, that while he was facing the Qibla, he says, Bring me my shroud. And he mentioned it, down to the day. So the year, the, the year, and uh, down to the, the month and the day. He says, and then he said, Bring me my kefin, bring me my shroud. So they, he, he, they brought Imam Ghazali his shroud. 
and he's witnessing this firsthand. He was present when his brother did this. He said he took his shroud and he put it on his head like this, and he put it over his eyes. He says, "Sam'an wata'atan lidhul al malak," that I hear and I obey to enter under the presence of the Lord. And he laid down on his right side facing the qibla, and passed away. Allahu Akbar. And then someone saw Imam Ghazali after he passed and said, "Ma Allahu bik? What did Allah do with you?" And he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave me. And he said that one time when I was writing one of my books, is that I had put my pen in the inkwell, because back in the day they didn't have you know ballpoint pens that have ink come out of it like we do. They used to have some type of reed pen of some sort and dip it in the inkwell and then write a little bit, dip it and write a little bit, dip it and write a little bit. So he said, I dipped my pen into the inkwell and as I was taking it, a fly, a fly that landed on the tip. And he said, a moment of mercy overcame me and I just let the fly drink a little bit of ink. And then I continued to write. He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave me for that. Imam al-Ghazali, you would have thought, oh, Allah forgave you because you wrote the Ihya al-Muddin. Allah forgave you because you did... No. He said, Allah forgave me because of the mercy that overcame me of letting a fly drink from the tip of my pen. And it's for this reason, never, ever, ever can we belittle any act of goodness. You don't ever know. You have no idea. There could be someone who's just going through severe trauma. And all you do is smile at them. And your smile warms their heart, makes them feel better, and it's the means for you to enter into paradise. You have no idea what is going to be the means for you to enter into Jannah. That's why you can never, ever, ever belittle any good action. There's three things. We're never supposed to belittle. You're never supposed to belittle any good action. Nor its opposite, nor are you ever supposed to belittle any wrong action because the wrath of Allah might be in that. And thirdly, is that you're never supposed to belittle any person. There might be someone who doesn't look like they're special, doesn't dress like they're special, doesn't act like they're special. They might even be unkept. A whole bunch of things. They might annoy you. But that person could be from the awliya. You never, ever, ever know. The awliya are not the only people wearing turbans and robes and people witnessing saintly miracles on their hands. The vast majority of awliya are actually very simple people. And the vast majority of awliya are people that actually people overlook and don't even know that they're awliya. And you would be surprised. There are... You know, they, you, you have to be careful saying this person is a wali. Because, you know, you say, And he appears like this person is very special. Only Allah knows who the awliya are, and only the awliya know who the other awliya are. But there are certain signs. The awliya essentially are the people of taqwa. And there are signs of people of taqwa. There's things that they do, there's things that they don't do. When you're in the presence of a person of taqwa, they don't speak ill of other people. People of taqwa have certain traits, they have certain characteristics that indicate, right? Because only a wali is, has to be a person of taqwa. All of the awliya are people of taqwa. And that's the path to wilai is through taqwa. But you would be surprised. There are people like that. And not just one or just two. You would be surprised how many people that are like that. In these lands in which we live, without even getting into the traditional Muslim world, in these lands in which we live, that live here, not even just visit. Yes, we get special visitors. I'm not talking about just our area here. The United States of America and other Western countries get special visitors. I'm not talking about visitors. Special people, special people, sometimes that are in our midst and we have no idea that these people are special. And that it requires a certain culture for someone to attain, to start to perceive who is special and who is not special. There's a culture that's... And you'd be surprised. There are people... I've had friends that have told me stories that he said, SubhanAllah, my mother-in-law's dua is mustajab. 
He said, I, I, don't, I don't tell her that, but any time that I need a dua for anyone, I just will mention it in front of my mother-in-law. And when she makes dua, he said, I've never seen it not happen. Mustajab. Khalas. Every time she's made dua for someone, it happens. SubhanAllah, this is a convert. Without going into divulging who that is. But this is, this is real. These people are here among us. In the United States of America, they exist. These people are there. There are there's very very special people that exist among us, and really, how could it be otherwise? If you really think about how many people here forcibly came here as refugees from places like Somalia, from places like Syria, and other places, is that there are so many righteous people still in the Muslim world, and naturally, when you have immigration, you're going to get some of these people, but. Uh, anyhow, I, I've met firsthand very special people here that live here, that live here and heard stories. You wouldn't believe me if I told you them. You'd think something's wrong with me and I'm gone mad. Here in these lands, not far from us. And um, anyhow, we went into a tangent. What were we talking about? Imam al-Ghazali. And certainly al-Ghazali has made that clear. So Imam al-Ghazali's story... One of the books I highly, highly recommend every, pe- every person reads is Al-Munqidh Min Al-Dalal. Um, deliverance or the deliverer, better translated, from air. And um, the best translation we have, and we, it, it could be improved on, but still it's pretty good, is the one that Fanz Fateh published um, that's titled uh, Al-Ghazali's Path to Sufism. Um, but... Um, that really that's, it, it's put in a way that some people are going to not access the book because of the title. But really what, it's, what the whole book is about is the epistemological, I'm sorry, fancy word, that superiority of the awliya, their, the epistemological superiority of the methodology of the awliya. In other words, how do you and I come to certainty about this deed? And he that analyzes the way of the philosophers, he analyzes what he calls the way of the naturals, he analyzes the way of that the botanites, he analyzes the way of the mutakallimun, the theologians. And he comes to the conclusion that this is the way to come to sincerity, this methodology. Uh, uh, sincerity, yes, but certainty, this methodology. And he talks about it's basically an autobiography. And that it's amazing, the details that he divulges in there about his past and so forth, and that his that path to this knowledge, and what led him to write so many of the works. So this book is essentially a fruit of one of these many works that he wrote, because it is essentially commenting on, and it's put into verse, and then commenting on a section from it. And so why is this important? Because um, he was he was seen to be the epitome of a scholar who put his knowledge into practice. An alim who's amal, who's rightly guided. So then, that Sidi Abdul Aziz, may Allah bless him, that has this last section, where he, he titles it a reflection. What is education? There are several terms for education in Arabic. They include ta'dib, ta'lim, or tadris. Ta'lim and tadris is essentially the same. Darasa yadrusu is to study. Darasa yudarrisu tadrisan is to teach. Alima ya'alimu is to know. Alama yu'alimu ta'animan is to teach. Which both mean teaching or giving of knowledge and tarbiyah. So the main terms are ta'dib, ta'lim, and tarbiyah. Tarbiyah implies development or growth. So again, this is important. Is that it's not just about learning the information. We should all know that. But the thing is, is that we have to be careful in terms of how we set the frame of learning in relation to our own children. If we say, yeah, 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 I know that. It's about ta'anim ta'adib. But we're like, if you do not get into an Ivy League school, you're not my son or daughter. You'd be surprised. I have seen Muslims almost on the verge of worship like it's almost, it's like just beneath 
ibadah, right? If one of their children gets into like an Ivy League school, like I've seen it with my own eyes, and it just it just it really bothers me at my core. I'm not saying that's not a great accomplishment, nor am I saying that we don't go to good schools. I'm saying though that there's something much more important than that. And it's the state of the heart of your child. And if you're saying, oh yeah, this is about ta'dib and tarbiyah and ta'lim altogether. But you're putting so much pressure on them that you're basically saying you're a failure if you don't achieve this. Or if you don't get such and such a job or have such and such a car, live in such and such a neighborhood. All of this social pressure. This is, it's, it's again, and I'm not saying that we don't encourage our children to succeed. On the other hand, that you don't just let them stay home and be lazy and not assume any responsibility. But this the balance is what is key. We should have a very balanced approach to these things. And if you know naturally that one of your children is smarter than others, people have different types of... Some of your children will be very book smart, but they won't be very emotionally intelligent. Some of them will be very good in one aspect, but weak in another. Learning to know your children and helping them find a career track or a way of living their life that suits them. And we should not fit them in the cookie-cutter world in which we live, especially in the United States of America, that either you fit into this or else. No. That is that a deep that disservice, and I would even go as far to say that injustice to our children. And that on the contrary, we need to encourage, encourage our children to think out of the box that other people are trying to fit them in. To be creative. If you're willing to work, for the most part, and that you conduct your affairs that appropriately, is that you're not going to starve. You're not going to starve. And that studies show is that if you do something in life that makes you happy, what you feel most passionate about, what you're actually really good at, that is going to fulfill you much more than if you spend your life doing a job that you hate, even if you get a large salary. I was just speaking to that Dr. Abbas and how he was saying that about the suicide rate of doctors, how high that is. Doctors, people that you'd think that, like a doctor, that these are people that everyone wants to be like, they're a doctor. You know that they're well off. You know they're making anywhere from this amount to that amount. And, but why is there so much depression amongst doctors that come to him in secret because that their license will get revoked if they know that they actually have depression? Where is that coming from? Why are they not satisfied? And what is happening? Um, so that really, that we, we have to be very careful with this. We have to prepare that our children for careers, but in a very wholesome way, and in, in a way that is conducive to um, their that uh, that their deen, mashallah. Okay, so um, he goes into uh, goes into this a little bit more, and um, that he says now reflecting on the commentary above of everything we just mentioned, two important things come to mind. That uh, Sayyid Muhammad Naqib al-Attas, who's one of uh, the great authors and great people and intellects of our time. He's from, he lives in Malaysia, but he's from the Attas family. He's the grandson of, of Habib Abdullah bin Muhsan al-Attas. And has several books. One of his great books is Islam and Secularism. But anyhow, he's written a lot on education. He says, he links the concept of adab to justice. This idea of putting something in its place. Its proper place. In Arabic... The opposite of justice is zulm, which is defined as placing something in its improper place. For this reason, one may do injustice to others by denying them their rights. But more importantly, one may do injustice to oneself. One who has wronged himself cannot really be balanced in his relationships with others. This contains an important lesson for parents and educators. So when we talk about this idea of justice, it actually begins with our own self. And one of the meanings of justice also is this idea of balance. 
So justice really is about a balance. And even at the level of, all eth of our ethical theory, it all relates to balance. And when Imam al-Ghazali incorporates that fourth cardinal virtue that is even in its Aristotelian sense considered to be one of the four that noble virtues that whereby which all of the other virtues stem from that the idea of justice really is about the balance of all of our other faculties one with another so the idea of justice also that is about balance and this is why the word in Arabic i'tidal means what? the middle way it's one of the words for it's like tawassut and that i'tidal is it, it relates to balance and so that in and of our own selves we have to start with our own selves if we are not just if we are not balanced in of our own selves how on earth are you going to demand that of someone else in relation to something else because you will that be the first perpetrator of injustice and so this requires that we begin with our own self, which is important. Being in balance with oneself or having adab towards oneself means understanding what the self is. Shocking ignorance. This seems to be a very, it's you. How could you not know what the self is? How many of us really know ourselves? Or how many of, ourselves, how many of us kind of know ourselves, but we're cowards in facing ourselves? Many of us are cowardly when it comes to facing our own self. And then we just project as if we're confident. We project as if that we got it together. But you'd be surprised. I've met people like this. Outwardly, they're very confident people. But when you get a little bit closer and you start to pry a little bit, they're deeply insecure. And it was just projection. And they haven't dealt with something that relates to who they are deep down inside. And at this level is that we have to know ourselves. We have to know ourselves. And it's not fun to start to realize your weakness. Oh, It's not fun to start to re realize your own vulnerability. It's not fun to start to recognize your deficiencies. And then what do you do with them? And oftentimes, unfortunately, we live in a society that even people that like us, even people that like us or love us, sometimes are that very insensitive in pry on our weak spots and our vulnerabilities and, 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 and. Sometimes people that love us, let alone people that don't know us or people that hate us. Of course, they're going to do that. But there's something weird about human nature in that sense, is that this happens. And that part of that, part of the solution to that, begins with our own selves. In coming to terms with who we are, and embracing that. And when it relates to things that we don't have control over, is that then it's ultimately a matter of acceptance. If Allah made you a certain way, khalas. Now, there's an outward dimension of that, but there's no There's a lot of people that hate the way they look. They hate the way they've been created. They hate their portion they've been given in life. If you start there, you're going to create a mess when you're dealing with other people. Right? If and these are trivial things, but there are people that really they have complexes as a result of this. If you hate your height, or you hate the color of your skin, or you hate the sh your shape, or whatever. If you it, like, like you know, again within what it relates to what you can you can't control. Yani Subhanallah, how are you going to then, if that's happening inside of yourself, have a solid relationship and not that make mistakes when dealing with others? It starts with knowledge of the self. And that theoretically, you can fairly easily become that very secure within your own self. And what I mean by that is, is that you've accepted that how Allah has made you. And one of the things, I, I really recommend this. And again, it's not going to be easy. 
but I recommend some of the closest people to you that you know you can trust and ask them to list for you your strengths and your weaknesses. Ask them to list, it, list them for you. List my strengths and my weaknesses. And the people that you know really care for you and aren't going to you know, tell anyone else and not tell you know, list them. And you'd be surprised to see the consistency when one, two, three, four people, five people say the same thing. Hmm, your parents are some of the great people that should do that. You've seen me since I've been young, mom, dad, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses? Right, and then really people that know you well, your brothers, your sisters. I know it sounds weird to even talk like this, but it's really, really helpful. Right? To come to know yourself is where this whole thing starts. Right? We're talking about, we're supposed to be talking about tarbiyah of children. But this is the most important thing of all. And the, the, one of the biggest problems is we think of the child, the child, the child. No, yourself first. <laughs> because that what you do is the greatest thing as is coming here that will that affect the child. You will affect the child greater than anything that you say is how you are. This is what's going to really affect the child is how you are. So tarbiya, now this doesn't mean we're going to figure this out over, overnight, but it means that we should invest the time to do so moving forward, coming to know ourself, having the courage to face ourself. And then, now you're going to think I really am weird, is that the people of the science, the inner science, they talk about it in the language of slaughtering the ego. Breaking the idols of the self. And the fatuwa of Sayyidina Ibrahim. That's the spiritual meaning of him not worshipping that, but breaking the idols of the self. Slaughtering the ego so that it's dead. This is what they say. Die before you die. In the death of the ego is the life of the heart. Life of the heart is in the death of the ego. And with the death of the ego is that lies the secret of tarbiyah. The greatest people of tarbiyah that are those who themselves have died. They're completely in submission to Allah and His Messenger. And they're people that embody the sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ. These are people that give tarbiyah just by being in their presence, people transform. Just by being in their presence, they give tarbiyah with their hal much, 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 much before. They give tarbiyah with their words. And we think that we can just get mad on one occasion and rah, 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 And somehow that's going to stick in our child and remain with them and they're never going to ever do it again. What's wrong with us? It doesn't work like that. That Yes, the verbal part of it is important, but this is where we absolutely must begin. And then he has a very beautiful section here. You can read it. And he talks about that human nature starting with this question that Allah asked us, am I not your Lord? And yearning for the divine presence. He talks about the, it talks about the lower ego and then the nafs al-amara. And that we as parents and teachers need to work on our own ta'deed, self-discipline. And likewise, ensure that when we deal with children, we show justice and not zulm. Children understand justice and injustice because part of them is closer to the primordial state as fitra, and therefore it is our zulm that corrupts their state and our adab that develops adab within them. This for me is the meaning of education. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's where it all starts. Um, he mentions the three linguistic meanings of tarbiyah, increase, growing up, and making right. And he says the concept of tarbiyah is very important in my mind. And that he quotes Rousseau who said, plants are fashioned by cultivation, man by education. And this implies education is the process of nurturing a child into becoming an adult. And then he says here, that just will end on this story and then open up for Q&A. 
When I was living in Saudi Arabia, someone was intrigued as to what an Englishman dressed in Arab clothes and speaking Arabic was doing in Jeddah. I explained that I was a teacher and his face lit up, probably thinking I could tutor his children. When he asked what subject I taught, I told him I was a primary school teacher. In near disgust, he said, Ah, bes murabbi? Meaning, oh, just a child carer? His tone of voice questioned my manhood and intelligence. At the time, I felt offended. But on reflection, on reflecting upon it, I realized that it was quite a compliment to be called a carer, a murabbi. Caring is not gender specific. The Prophet ﷺ is described in the Quran as ra'uf and rahim, meaning concern for others and merciful. These two qualities are at the core of being a caring carer, will be an apt description of the Prophet ﷺ. It was not until very recently that I heard the term used again about my role. During a presentation about our last trip to Mecca, the present, presenter pointed out a photo of me with a wheelchair user and a blind brother, and the caption read, Ricardo Balal and their carer. Until then, I had not thought of myself as a carer, but now I will take the term as a badge of honor. This backward mentality, ah, best murabbi? That's the problem. That basically encapsulates everything that's not supposed to be there. Oh, they're just children. Oh, it's just the children's program. Oh, who cares? No. No. It's not just the children's program. It's not just a, oh, who cares? It's just a primary school teacher. No. This is why we're so backwards. It's because of that, that way of thinking. Is that, again, from the moment the child's born, before the child's born, from the time that the baby is made, that from the time that the baby's in the womb, this is when it starts. How do you take care of that child? And definitely what the mother does and does not do affects the child. What she eats affects the child. Her stress levels affect the child. That if she's, all of these things affect the child. There's no doubt about that. And that also doing good things affect the child. Listening to Qur'an, reciting Qur'an while the child's in your womb abundantly affects the child. Sending salawat affects the child. Even from before that, making a strong intention to devote your child to the sake of Allah Ta'ala affects the child. Did we talk about the story of Maryam? I can't remember. If I was meaning to talk about that or we didn't talk about that. Okay, if you could just remind me, we are out of time now for the next class. We'll start with that because it's, this, it's, it's the Qur'anic example of intention for children and the mother of, of Sayyidatul Maryam um, Sayyida Hana um, anyhow this is the problem is that if we look at it like this oh just they're still young let someone else raise them let them wear whatever let them play let them watch whatever this is the problem and then all of a sudden you're going to try to undo all of that when they're a little bit older, not even forget, forget, forgetting how highly addictive many of these things are, arousal addictions that they develop and that you've done, you've given them. And now how are you going to wean them from that? Right? So um, anyhow, inshallah, we will continue on uh, in this study. And uh, if there's any questions. Uh, so I'll leave that, the discussion part of it, I'll leave that for that uh, you to read. Uh, and that's on page 20 and 21. It's my copy. Is that, do we have the same pagination? 2021? Okay. Is there any questions, comments, or um, yeah, anything of that nature? Yeah, you can actually. Actually, we'll leave the live stream going until the Q&A is done. Yeah. Sure, yeah.